This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, to understand its implications for us as church-age believers in terms of how we are to take up the challenge to live our Christian life as genuine uh, disciples, seeking to learn, absorb, and assimilate what you, have t- what you teach us in your word, that we might glorify you both now and into eternity. We pray for that we might have responsive wills to that which is taught today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study in Matthew. Our focus is on Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, which gets into the topic of judgment. But once again, we're going to have to take some time It may be getting a little boring for some of you as I keep reiterating some of the same points, going back through the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But there are always visitors, new people who come in, and others who uh, have to hear this six, seven, eight times or more in order to get it. Some time ago I read something that said a genius needs to have something repeated six or seven times, and the rest of us, have to have it repeated 27 or 8, 28 times before we get it. So repetition is, is good for learning and key to learning, and I hope to repeat things uh, so that you don't forget them and you will remember this. Now, when we get into Matthew 7, and we get into this particular section. I pointed this out last time, and, and we're going to cover this by way of review, that it is not uncommon, in fact, it is by far the most prominent way of approaching this section, is that Jesus is now talking either all along through Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus has been talking to a mixed group that includes believers and unbelievers, and that the primary purpose that Jesus is talking is to show that the, that the works righteousness of the Pharisees, the law-based righteousness of the Pharisees, is just inadequate to have a relationship with God. What is needed is a a absolute righteousness that, that it far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's Matthew 5.20 says that their righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But the question is, is this talking about the kind of righteousness we get at salvation, or is this talking about experience, the experiential righteousness of the believer after, after salvation? 
And so there are various passages that people will go to to try to support that. And if you look at Matthew 5 through five through 7, from the viewpoint that Jesus is talking about justification or how to get to heaven when you die, then you can find certain things that sort of sound like that. And Matthew 7.13 certainly does sound like that. Jesus says there's two ways. There's a narrow way and a broad way, and the broad way leads to destruction, and the narrow way leads to life. And I pointed out last time that it is clear that Scripture says there's only one way to eternal life, that is to be justified, so that you are guaranteed that at the point of physical death, you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But in context, going back to Deuteronomy, And the reason I go to Deuteronomy is because the context of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is giving his viewpoint, God's viewpoint, the divine viewpoint on uh, on the Mosaic law and how it should be applied. The Mosaic law wasn't given to be justified. The Mosaic law wasn't a means of determining your eternal destiny. The Mosaic law was given to uh, Israel as viewing them as a justified or a saved people, telling them how a righteous people were to live. You have two problems in life in terms of the full blessing of God in terms of the Mosaic Law, is they had to possess imputed righteousness, and they also had to possess experiential righteousness in order to uh, experience the full blessing of God in the land. If they had imputed righteousness, but they didn't have experiential righteousness, God said if they, were, if they were disobedient, he would kick them out of the land. So they had to have both. So in a sense, Jesus is, indicates both, but he's talking about the experiential end, which presupposes having imputed righteousness. Now let me ask you a question. How do you know that people in the Old Testament knew about or understood imputed righteousness? You understand that from Genesis chapter 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, and that term there means imputed. That's how it was translated in the King James. Imputed or accounted or reckoned to him as righteousness. So that's the kind of righteousness that an unbeliever receives as a gift from God at the instant of faith in Jesus Christ. At that instant, God credits to us or imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when God the Father looks at that perfect righteousness, he declares us to be just, righteous before him. That's that's the doctrine known as justification by faith alone. Now, when we look at Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon, his parting words, his last address on the plains of Moab to the Israelites before he is going to go up on Mount Nebo and he will be taken to be with the Lord. And so he is telling them what they must do, how they should live in order to experience all the blessing and all the fullness in the land. I keep going back to this because it's so important to understand If this is the frame of reference for for the Sermon on the Mount, then we can see easily Jesus isn't talking about how to get into heaven, but how to live in such a way that when the kingdom of God comes, that those who he's talking to experience the fullness of God's blessing in the kingdom, and by 
application or implication to us as church-age believers, we too will experience the fullness of the blessing that God has for us in the future kingdom. Now, both the Jews of his day, remember, they would be understood as Old Testament saints. And it's important to keep this in mind when we're looking at these passages related to false prophets and the false miracle workers, is that he is talking to Jews at a specific point in time in the early part of the first century, and he is talking to them about circumstances and situations that are realities in their environment. So he's not talking to you, he's not talking to me, he's not talking to church-age believers, he's talking to Old Testament saints under the Mosaic Law. So I, when I talk about application or implication, we have to understand that, that what we have in common with them is that Jesus is, is preparing them for the coming of the kingdom. And Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the time that Jesus returns, and they go into the kingdom in resurrection bodies to rule and reign over Israel. In a similar way, you and I, as members of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we will uh, be uh, resurrected and raptured before the uh, tribulation. We go to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be with him forever in the air. And, And immediately after the rapture, we go through an evaluation known as the judgment seat of Christ. At that point, rewards will be given out. Some who have not lived the Christian life the Christian way of life will lose rewards, as I read in 1 Corinthians, 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. They will lose rewards, but they won't lose their salvation. They'll still be in heaven. They'll still be in the kingdom, but they won't be full participants in the ruling and reigning privileges in the kingdom. Now, let me put a little caveat in here for some of you who are a little more knowledgeable on what's going on in, in, in the world today. Within the uh, so-called free grace movement... There is a branch that is teaching that not only do you not do you lose rewards, but that that believers who are disobedient and carnal in their life in in on the earth will end up going through some sort of period of torment, some period of sort of a Christian purgatory during the millennial kingdom. They won't be in the kingdom. They won't be present. That is, I do not believe that is biblical at all. We are all saved, but there are differences that will be enjoyed by those who are saved and and have rewards and those that don't. Uh, someone has described this as we will all have cups. Uh, some will have large cups that are full. Others will have small cups that are full. But we are all we all have cups, and there are believers that will be. Uh, completely off base uh, because of their Christian life today, uh, because and they will lose. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. That's all introductory. We'll deal with that more as we go through the message. So Moses set before them a decision. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. You have a choice to make. We all have choices to make every day. Are we going to live for the Lord today, or are we going to live for ourselves today? And he told them, and that, uh, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. 
Uh, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments is just a way of talking about experiential righteousness, walking in obedience to the Lord. In contrast, in verse 17, he says, But if your heart turns away so that you don't hear and you're drawn away, you worship other gods, you disobey God, and your heart turns away. So uh, he says in verse 18, rather, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. So the issue is if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will perish. If you obey, there's life, fullness of life in, in the land. If you disobey, there is, will be a loss of life, loss of blessing in the land. Uh, he's already outlined the, what we refer to as the five cycles of discipline, the consequences of that, of that sin. So we looked at this last time, establishing the framework. Then he warns about false prophets. Now there's a, if you look at this structurally, in 15 through 20, the topic is false prophets and that you know them by their fruits. In verses 21 to 23, uh, there's a shift to those who are working uh, false miracles. And at the end, Jesus says, I will declare to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In both cases, there is an assumption that he is talking about Though the, the judgment has come upon those who are unbelievers, that the false prophets are actually unbelievers, and the uh, false miracle workers are also unbelievers. That doesn't work within the structure of the Greek. This, the Greek clearly shows a distinction between those in 15 through 20 and those in 21 through 23. Those that we talked about last time in terms of false prophets are depicted as those who come in sheep's clothing. They are not sheep. Sheep, the, the idea of using sheep as a metaphor for the people of God is common in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are wolves who are putting on a disguise. A wolf is not depicted as someone who is a believer. So the picture here is that there are those who are coming from without. They come to you, Jesus says. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. So they're coming from outside, whereas those in 21 through 23 are on the inside. So again, this indicates a distinction between the first group and the second group. Now, another caveat Jesus is not saying that that, own, that false prophets are unbelievers. In context, he's talking about, to his original audience, about false prophets that are unbelievers. But we see from subsequent references to false prophets in, for example, 1 Peter and other places, that false prophets can also arise from within the church who are uh, carnal believers. But contextually here, he's drawing this distinction between false prophets who are unbelievers and the false miracle workers who have come up from within, from within the ranks of the church. And last time we looked at this, he talks about the fact that you know them by their fruits. Fruits is not a term that refers to lifestyle although in a couple of places it can have that implication. It primarily refers to the product of their ministry, which for false prophets are their words. This takes us back, as I ended last time, to Deuteronomy 13, 
and Deuteronomy 18, two passages that describe how to tell a false prophet from a true prophet, that a false prophet is not discerned because he, and here you see a connection between the false prophet and the worker of signs and wonders. He's not determined to be a false prophet because he has uh, counterfeit miracles. He's assumed to be performing some kind of legitimate miracle. If Moses said to the Israelites, if there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass. This is a question that's always hard for for people to, to address. People who live on the basis of experiential truth will often get deceived because they will go to some assembly and there will be a miracle worker, there will be a faith healer there, and they may experience healing. And it's legitimate. And then they get sucked into the false teaching of this particular group. One time I was teaching this in a home Bible study at a church I pastored up in Irving about 20 years or more ago. And uh, about 25 years ago, I guess. And uh, the mother of the uh, lady who was hosting the Bible class, the couple that was there, her mother had gone to a healing revival and had been and claimed to have been healed from cancer, and that shaped everything. And see, that's so often when our experience seems so real, that's the test. Are you going to listen to the Word of God? Are you going to listen to your experience? When your, your experience is more real than the word of God, then you fail the test. That's what Moses is saying here. When the word of God is more real to you than your experience, then you're walking by the word. And so Moses recognizes this sign of wonder comes to pass, and then there's a message. And the message is in direct contradiction to what the scripture says in direct contradiction to Revelation. And so the false prophet is saying, let's go after other gods and let's serve them. That violates the law, which st- clearly stated that you shall have, God said that you shall have no other, uh, gods before me. So in this instance, uh, Moses says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you. That's the test. Are you going to rely on experience, or are you going to rely upon the Word? Now, this is one situation. I ran into another interesting situation on this the other day, and this is where it gets really tough for people. I was uh, talking with a pastor the other day who is Hispanic, and I and it, we, we had several pastors together, and we were having a conversation, and I asked him about what he thinks about this immigration issue. Well, what was interesting was he, in fact, was a product of illegal immigration. His mother had brought him across the border when he was very young, and he's now a U.S. citizen, works here, has a good job, has his own business, but and, and he is a lay pastor for a group of several Hispanic families, about 40% of which are here illegally. And I raised the question, I said, how do you handle this as a pastor? He's, he's, his answer was, I don't know, I just ignore it. Now, the, uh, all the other pastors kind of chipped in, and it was interesting, because the, reality, the, the question was, how do you handle this in terms of Romans 13? You, we have an experience 
And he was telling us that he grew up in a, he's been back there, a small village in Mexico that's been wiped out by almost a 40-year drought. And there's no work. There's nothing there. I mean, your heart goes out to people like this. You put a face on the immigration issue. And it's really difficult because some of these people are wonderful people. They have horrible circumstances. And they have escaped horrible circumstances in order to feed their families. But on the other hand, what happens here is we have we slip into, because of our emotion, because of our compassion, because of experience, we slip from the absolute standard of God's word, which says that we're to obey the law of the land. The unjust laws, yes, there are unjust laws, but the unjust laws that we study in Scripture, when there is a justified reason to disobey them, all have to do with the government telling the individual Christian to do something that is a direct contradiction to what the Word of God says. This doesn't fit that pattern. There are a lot of people who do have jobs and who've managed to make a living in places like Mexico and Honduras and Guatemala and Colombia. It's not great. But that does that justify breaking the laws of the land you're going to in order to feed your family, in order to survive, in order to be able to make it. The experience is hard to tell somebody. You re- if, you're, if you really want to honor the Lord and stay here in the United States, you can't do it illegally. You're breaking the law. That's, that's a fundamental violation of Romans 13 and everything the Scripture says. But if you cave into that, then you're making a decision based on your experience and not based on the black and white absolutes of the Word of God. That's where it gets difficult. And we live in a world today when people do not have the moral courage to make the hard, tough decisions in life when they come up against these kinds of of ethical challenges. The scriptures are very clear, and we can't back off of those things. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's, there's ways in which we ought to help, work out ways, try to keep somebody here, work through the system, see what can be done. Those are all great, but you can't just turn a blind eye to it. You can't just act as if it doesn't exist. You can't just act as if they can live here and willfully violate the law. This is when it gets tough. That's what Moses is talking about here. You and I are going to go through times in life when our experience screams at us to be more real than than what the Word of God says. And that's the test. Are we going to trust the Word of God, or are we going to trust in our experience? Deuteronomy 18 is also a test that the prophet, what the prophet speaks is true. The penalty for both, the false prophet, is death. So God's very serious about this. Now, we shift gears. All that's just kind of review and... and, and uh, uh, reminder, we shift gears when we come to Matthew 7, 20, 21. Matthew 7, 21, now Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, in that day, in that day is a term, even, it was, it was even used in rabbinical literature of this time to refer to the messianic era, the time when the Messiah was on the earth. Many will say to me, in that day, this would be when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom and there's a judgment. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, 
Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? See, that fits that category back there in Deuteronomy 13 of the one who comes and claims to have claims to to be a prophet and seems to validate it through legitimate miracles, signs and wonders, healings that you can't explain. As most of you know, because many of you have read the book that Tommy and I wrote on spiritual warfare, we make a strong case from the very beginning of that book that that is essentially what I've been arguing. You have to base your beliefs and your practice on what the Word of God says and not on, on experience. And there are many people that I've talked to over the years who claim to have some sort of experience, whether it's with casting out demons uh, or whether it's with healing or whatever it might be. But the bottom line is we always have to go back to the Word. So Jesus says there are those who will come to him in, at the time of judgment. He's just talking about judgment generically. We'll get into some details of that in a minute. And he declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, many times I have taken this, for, for the most part, until I've got, gotten into this detailed study of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus was talking to unbelievers who were practicing counterfeit signs and wonders. Counterfeit not because they weren't really a miracle, but counterfeit because they weren't from God. The Antichrist, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 is, and following, is going to uh, produce miracles and healings and signs and wonders that are, that are, but they're counterfeit. They're real, but they're not from God. And, but this will cause a great deception and many will, will follow him. So there is a, a, a knee-jerk reaction. And even among a lot of free grace teachers, what I'm teaching you is not a common view, but I think it's the consistent view uh, based on our understanding of the context of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is addressing believers, that this is not talking about depart and go to the lake of fire. It's talking about something else. So just a review here as to why I say this. The issue is, is Jesus talking about talking to unbelievers about how to be believers? Is he talking about justification? Or is he talking about post-salvation, post-justification, sanctification? First of all, we've noted that Jesus is addressing his disciples who are already saved. Second, he taught them to pray to our Father. There are many other things that he said in the uh, prayer that he gave them that we call the Lord's Prayer that relate to believers, assuming that his audience is believers. The thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is on how the righteous should live, not on how the unsaved become righteous. See, it wasn't just a matter of the fact that Israel, at the time that Jesus came, needed to be, receive imputed righteousness. They needed to also live a righteous life so that the kingdom would come in. They needed to fully turn to God, not just in terms of justification, but in terms of their whole life. So we conclude that the focus here is not on the unsaved, but on the saved who have not lived in obedience to the word. So in Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a passage that, again, people say, entering the kingdom of heaven, isn't it obvious that means getting into heaven when you die? Not necessarily. The verse that I have at the bottom of the screen from Acts 14.22 is a verse describing Paul's uh, 
uh, return trip to Lystra, Iconium, and Derby after he has already led many to the Lord and established churches in those three locales in south-central Turkey. He returns, and Luke tells us he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. He calls them disciples. They're already believers, exhorting them to continue in the faith. See, they've already become believers. Now they have to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, if entering the kingdom of God means getting saved, then what Paul is saying is the only way to get into heaven is to go through a lot of adversity. But that contradicts the rest of Scripture, which says that Scripture is not based on works. It's based on a free gift. Simply believe in Jesus Christ. So enter the kingdom of God clearly means more than just getting into heaven. As I pointed out last time and before, sometimes it means just getting into heaven, which is how Jesus uses it in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, that a man must be born again before he will see the kingdom of God. Second, it's talking about entering the kingdom in terms of experiencing the fullness and the richness of that kingdom, which is how it's, how it's used here. Taking us back to the beginning, we have a sermon here. There's an introduction in the Beatitudes, and then there's the main body, which is introduced by verses 17 through 20, and from 521 down through uh, chapter 7, verse, verse 12, we have the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, and now Jesus is in the conclusion. So in the introduction, he talked about that there were two kinds of people that he's addressing within the sermon. He's not talking about unbelievers versus believers because both of these kinds of people in verse 19 are in the kingdom. There's one who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, and he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but he's still in the kingdom of heaven. And then the other does and applies the word, does the commandments, teaches them, and he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 20 is often said to be a complete break with verse 19. But verse 20 grammatically begins with this word for, which indicates that it's an explanation of what was said in the previous verse. So you can't separate these two verses and say they're talking about two different things. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, for I say to you, let me explain this a little further. What I'm saying is that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees are finding loopholes and they're redefining uh, commands in the Mosaic law and they're teaching a superficial righteousness that includes uh, a lack of a full obedience to the law as, as their as their standard for, for the uh, spiritual life and for the life of, of believers in Israel. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to exceed this kind of, of superficial righteousness that the Pharisees are talking about. He's not talking about uh, imputed righteousness. Now, does this, could you in some way make this apply to imputed righteousness? Sure you can, but it doesn't fit the context. Just because it could mean that doesn't mean it does mean that. We have to understand it in terms of the whole context. And so then Jesus says, if you don't do this, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. What he means by that is the same thing Paul meant by it, or that Luke meant by it in, in, uh, in Acts 14.22, that we have to enter the kingdom through adversity. We have to grow and mature in order to fully experience the blessings of the kingdom when we get into the kingdom. So the conclusion is that entering the kingdom 
means not only getting into the kingdom in terms of justification, but also experiencing all of the richness and the blessing of the kingdom that God has for us when we are when we are in heaven. So if you don't possess the surpassing righteousness that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5.20, then you're basically the kind of Christian that has lost its saltiness back in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 13, where it talks about that a believer is the salt of the earth. And I pointed out in our understanding of what the meaning of that metaphor, that it doesn't mean to make people thirst for the word of God, but it means to be fruitful in your Christian life because salt wasn't just used to uh, uh, create thirst in something. It wasn't just used for seasoning or flavoring, but salt was also used in the ancient world. I went through uh, several lines of evidence to show this. It was used to make soil productive. It, it, even up until about 50 or 60 years ago, salt was the primary ingredient in fertilizer. I had a quote, great quote from Horace Greeley talking about uh, the importance of salt in fertilizer. And that's not something we normally think of. We normally think that if you put salt in the ground, it won't be productive. But that's because we put a lot of salt in the ground. But if you put a little bit of salt in the ground, it kills the weeds. So it's always been a, an element in fertilizer. And in the Luke parallel passage, it talks about the fact that when, when the soil won't produce and, and because it's lost its saltiness, then uh, it, it's not good for the manure pile. What do you use manure for in mulching and in, in producing fertilization for the soil? It's not even good for that. that. So it fits the context. So what Jesus is talking about here is if you're not producing this kind of righteousness, you're like this non-productive, non-fruitful believer referred to back in, in, in Matthew 5.13. You're what we call a lifelong carnal believer, and you are, have not grown, you've not matured, you're not producing any kind of uh, fruit in your life which is, which is rewardable. Now, there are those who disagree with me, and they would go to a passage like John 6.39, which says, This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should, oh, I've got the wrong verse there. Uh, Matthew, or John 6, I must have gotten something else, says, This is the will of God that you believe in, that you believe in me. Well, that's true. That's part of God's will that we believe in him. But we can't go over to, to the Gospel of John to try to clarify a passage like this in Matthew 7 when we clearly have a, a statement here related to uh, believers. Now, Matthew 7:22, Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not prophes- have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now, this group is clearly talking about those who are believers. The first group was a group that was talking about, uh, was talking about unbelieving false prophets, but these are believers who are also false prophets. They claim that we have prophesied in your name. We have cast out demons in your name, and we've done many wonders in your name. Now, when we get into Matthew 8 through 10, there are a number of episodes there where Jesus casts out demons, and I will talk about demonology and exorcism and demon possession, etc., when we get into those passages. 
But casting out demons is really the biblical term, not exorcism. It's the word ekbalo here in the Greek, not exorchizo. But they are claiming that they have cast out demons, and since it was done in Jesus' name, he must be the power behind it. That's what they're claiming. But the question here that I want to address first is the question of in that day. Now, remember, this: Jesus is teaching before the cross. He's teaching in the time of the age of Israel. It's, he's under the Mosaic law. So there are two options for that in that day. One is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's what applies for us because we're church-age believers. We're not Old Testament saints, which is the audience he's talking to. Their judgment comes at the end of the tribulation, when there's the sheep and the goat judgment, which is a judgment on the surviving Gentiles from the tribulation, the surviving Jews of the tribulation, Old Testament saints are resurrected, and tribulation saints are resurrected. Those judgments occur at the end of the tribulation when Christ returns in preparation for the millennial kingdom. So when he's talking to them, that's the judgment that he's talking about in that day. It's when they, as Old Testament saints, would be judged. Because the church wasn't announced yet. As we studied in, on Thursday, or excuse me, on Tuesday night, the church was a mystery to those in the Old Testament. It wasn't anticipated. So to them, he's talking about the fact that there's this future judgment for them as Old Testament saints. But for us as church-age believers, because we're not part of Israel, we have a different judgment. We have a judgment that's called the judgment seat of Christ, and this occurs immediately after or immediately following the rapture of the church, and the rapture of the church is what ends uh, the, the present church age. So there will be a time of accountability He's talking to believers, whether they're Old Testament believers and the judgment is at the end of the tribulation, or whether it's church-age believers at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's an application there. So Jesus is recognizing that, that in, in this, this episode that there are those who will claim prophecy, they will claim to be casting out demons and doing many signs and wonders in Jesus' name. Now, we live in a world today when there are a lot of people who are making these kinds of claims. There are a lot of Christians who have been deceived and have been distracted by various movements from the charismatic Pentecostal movement, and in its traditional, historic, early 20th century form, compared to what's happening now and what happened, what developed from that by the end of the 20th century, it was pretty mild in the early uh, part of the 20th century. But by the post-World War II period, this whole idea of building theology on experience just exploded within the charismatic movement, or at that time it was just the Pentecostal movement, and it became known as the uh, uh, prophetic healing and deliverance ministries. And, it, and most of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you didn't come, grow up at that time or you weren't involved in charismatic churches at that time. But it, it truly exploded, but it gave birth to several subsequent movements. One of these movements was known as the Signs and Wonders Movement or the Vineyard Movement that came out of a church called the Vineyard Church in Southern California in the mid uh, mid-70s. It was pastored by a man by the name of John Wimber. 
John Wimber uh, went, came out of a somewhat Quaker background, though he claimed to have been dispensational, taught from a Schofield reference Bible. But he uh, let a man come into his church and take the pulpit, and he performed some sort of sign and said, everybody's going to receive the Holy Spirit now, and boom, everybody fell down on the ground and slain, so-called slain in the Spirit. This changes Wimber's theology. You know, his experience trumped the Bible. This gave rise to this whole movement known as the, the Vineyard Movement. And then they, and the churches just grew. I mean, they had uh, huge mega churches, uh, 10, 15,000 people. And I was doing my uh, doctoral dissertation research on this, this movement, went to a uh, spiritual warfare conference in Southern California in 1988, when, which was fortuitous because I can speak firsthand at this. There was a, a, at a meeting one night, and I was there, and what was described in subsequent meetings I never saw or experienced, but there was this guy who had come out of retirement, maybe, whatever it was. He had basically been off the scene for about, uh, for about, uh, maybe, uh, 30 years, who had had this experience as a great faith healer in his name, uh, his name was Paul Kane. Later on, just to skip over a lot of stuff, he became very influential with a group in Kansas City called the Kansas City Prophets, and they had a church there that was um, uh, really went through various permutations and name changes because there were uh, so many different scandals that that came along with with these people. But but that night that I was there, supposedly there was a blue light that was coming and hovering over everybody. I always called it the blue light special, and whoever the blue light hovered over, that was who Paul Kane would heal that night. And he would say all of these things, and I, 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 I was so shocked when I went to this, because I'm going there to research it, and I'm a little bit, uh, I have a little bit of uh, trepidation here going into the lion's den, as it were, with a lot of weird stuff going on that I didn't, didn't like, and the, the, I ran into four or five pastors there that I had graduated from Dallas Seminary with who were just sucking this up like it was mother's milk. And, and one of them was a very close friend of mine from my seminary days. I was just shocked and appalled. And they kept asking the question, well, well, these miracles, the, these things are legitimate. And I said, no, it doesn't matter. Go back to, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. The issue is the truth of what's being said. And, 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 and this is all not biblical. I was even in a workshop with this guy, Mike Bickle, who later became one of the prominent uh, leaders at the Kansas City Fellowship. And there's a, there's an important application to all this. This isn't just history, but you have to know the history. That Bickle came along and I was in a workshop on how to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and he's telling everybody, he says, you know, we don't talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit anymore because that gets so controversial. If you didn't grow up charismatic, then, then you don't like it. As soon as I say you need to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you, 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 you want to put your defenses up. He said, we just tell people that they need to be immersed in the Spirit. So I, so I, I wanted to say, so basically you deceive people into what you're teaching in, in order to get them to go through your little, your little dog and pony show. Uh, but wasn't a context for saying something like that. So all these kinds of things happened. Well, Bickle went on. Later on, uh, Kansas City Prophets developed into a, an organization now known as the International House of Prayer, IHOP. It, it had several other names. 
But it's also become associated with a, a thing called the New Apostolic Reformation, which was started by a guy named Peter Wagner. Now, Peter Wagner also ties into the other story with the Vineyard Movement and, and, uh, and John Wimber because it, it was Peter Wagner and John Wimber that really started that whole signs and wonders and prophecy movement. And Peter Wagner was the head of the missions department and the church growth department at Fuller Theological Seminary. So this becomes a major problem for a lot of pastors because they want their churches to grow. So they go out and they read the church growth literature. Well, the granddaddy of the church growth movement is Peter Wagner, and he all of this kind of stuff is in his literature. But because pastors don't know history and because a lot of people don't read this kind of history, and I sat down with Peter Wagner and, and uh, interviewed him for an hour and a half and got everything from uh, from the source, from the horse's mouth, as it were. And he believes in all of this stuff. Well, he has really gone off into left field since then, and um, uh, he really believes that all of these things are for today and they're prophets today and this kind of thing. Well, this whole new apostolic reformation movement, uh, along with the International House of Prayer, and others, hundreds of others who have become associated with, probably thousands of other churches that have become associated with this, were all the primary motivational group that influenced Texas Governor Rick Perry to have a prayer day that was held here in Houston about three or four years ago. All motivated, by, and, and a lot of these people are post-millennial. They're trying to bring in the kingdom. So that just, you know, what you see on the surface a lot of times isn't what you think it is. We always have to explore, investigate, come to understand who's behind these things. Just because they say they're Christian, just because it's, oh, isn't it wonderful, let's get together, have a huge day of prayer for the nation, that everything is what it appears to be on the surface. These are all false prophets and false miracle workers. Now, we have the judgment seat of Christ, but there are going to be those at the judgment seat of Christ that are going to be ashamed at his coming. First John 2.28 says, John says, Now, little children, abide in him. That's a term for fellowship. Stay in fellowship. Walk with the Lord. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See, there are going to be some Christians who are ashamed at his coming. We need to make sure we're not part of that group. Romans 14.12 says that, all of us have to give an account to him, to, of himself to God. That will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That is, whether or not it's been done uh, by the walking by the Spirit or not. Well, I want to skip over a couple of things. I'll just put one picture up here. This is the judgment seat, the Bema seat in Corinth, which was what Paul's alluding to here. This is where the local uh, 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 proconsul would judge and adjudicate trials, and Paul was brought before him at one time. So that's the idea. In, in fact, in a Jewish synagogue, you go to the synagogue, the, the, the raised dais or, or pa- platform is called the Bema comes from the Greek. It's just a raised platform where the person in authority sits. Now, Scripture teaches that this judgment seat of Christ is going to be an evaluation for believers. According to 1 Corinthians 3.12, we, our life is something after salvation that we build on the foundation of Christ. Some of what we produce in life is no more value than wood, hay, and straw. It, it, it will disappear. It has no 
no lasting benefit spiritually. Some of what we use to build with is gold, silver, and precious stones. I've heard some people try to make a distinction that each one of these refers to certain kinds of works. That's just drilling down in a way that Scripture doesn't justify. Gold, silver, and precious stones just establish something that won't burn in fire. In fact, the way you purify these things is through fire, and it burns up the impurities. Fire also destroys wood, hay, and straw. So we build with our lives, and we build something, a, a building on the foundation of Christ. It's our life. But we can't tell what has enduring value and what doesn't. At the judgment seat of Christ, Paul uses a metaphor to describe this. There will be a fire applied to our works, as it were. It's not a literal fire. This isn't talking about hell. This is just using this. That's just part of the metaphor of, of recognizing of purification. And what's revealed by this fire is that which has value. Notice the purpose of the judgment is not to reveal our failures, but the purpose of the fire is to reveal that which has been produced in our life through the walk by the Holy Spirit that has eternal value. So the fire tests, and the word there for test is a word, uh, uh, dokimazo is the verb, dokimas is the noun, and it indicates uh, demonstrating something of value, testing something for approval, not for disapproval. Now there's two results. Some, will, some of that work will endure. It's gold, silver, precious stones. It endures. And for that which has been produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit, there will be uh, something left over, and we receive a reward for that. But for others who don't know anything about walking by the Spirit, don't know anything about the spiritual life, they've trusted in Christ, but that's as far as it went, everything gets burned up. So they suffer loss. They don't have any rewards because there's nothing to reward. But they're still saved. That's that last line. They will be saved yet as through fire. So when we apply that to our passage in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, what we see is that these describe uh, those false prophets and false miracle workers that have gotten totally distracted by experience, and they have distracted and deceived many other, other believers, and they have convinced them that they are right, but when they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, they will be told to depart. Now, this departure isn't to the lake of fire. This is the departure of those who have suffered loss. They are not going to be entering into the kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. They won't experience the greatness of the, of the blessings of the kingdom in their life. But they will still be there. They will still be in the kingdom, and they will still be saved. So we see that there are differences between salvation and rewards. Salvation is available freely to all mankind, but rewards are for believers. Salvation is given to a few. Rewards are given to a few as well, a smaller amount. Not all who are saved are rewarded. In salvation, Christ does the work. For rewards, the believer does the work. Salvation is a free gift, but rewards are earned by our obedience to the Lord. Salvation is permanent. Rewards may be lost. We may still have the divine good, but there's, there's no rewards. That's what it clearly says. The, the, the rewards are lost. 
They're not distributed. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but rewards come by walking by faith, walking by the Holy Spirit. At salvation, we're given an equal opportunity to pursue greatness in the kingdom. Rewards are based on how well we pursue greatness, our use of that opportunity that the Lord gives us. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, just to tie this together, Paul gives Timothy, reminds Timothy of this faithful saying, probably originated by Paul. It's written in poetry. He says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, in the first verse, in verse 11, talks about the fact that if we died with him, and we have, we shall live with him. Romans 6.3 and Galatians 2.20 both teach that at the instant of salvation, we're crucified with Christ, we die with him. If you have trusted in Christ, then you died with him, and you will live with him. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 says that uh, Christ died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. All believers will live eternally with Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul goes on to talk about rewards here. If we endure, if we persevere in obedience, we shall reign with him. The rewards of greatness in the kingdom. But in contrast, if we deny him, if we turn our back on Christ in this life, if we do not walk with him, then at the judgment seat of Christ, he will deny us. He will deny us rewards. He will deny us a a role in sharing the kingdom with him as one who rules and reigns with him. But even if we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, and faithless here is the uh, Greek verb apistuo, Ah, is the negative. If we do not believe, if you quit believing in Christ, he remains faithful. Even if you quit believing in Christ, he remains uh, faithful. He will continue to keep you and you will not lose your salvation because our salvation is not dependent on who we are, but on who he is. And he cannot deny himself. So here we have a clear understanding of what Jesus is alluding to and talking about here in Matthew chapter 7, that there are those who are believers who will be not rewarded at at either the judgment of the Old Testament saints. They won't be given rewards, but they'll still have resurrection bodies and go into the kingdom. And the same for church-age believers. They'll have resurrection bodies, and they will go into the kingdom, but only those who practice obedience, who have the kind of experiential righteousness in their lives, will have rewards and will go into the kingdom to have ruling and reigning privileges with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the challenge for us. Are we just going to be glad we're going to get into heaven, or are we going to serve the Lord in this life in such a way that there will be rewards and we will fulfill our destiny as members of the uh, body of Christ to rule and reign with him, in the coming kingdom, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to be reminded that, that you pay attention not only to our, our faith in Christ for justification, but also our ongoing faith and growth in terms of Christian maturity, in terms of our eternal destiny.
that there will be accountability. It's not to focus on our failures, but to focus on our successes. But if there are no successes, then we will suffer loss in terms of rewards. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, that we might live today in light of eternity. Live today in light of the destiny for which we have been called, that we might glorify you in everything that we do. Father, we pray for anyone here that may not be sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they might clearly understand that salvation, that which determines our future destiny in heaven, is not based on works, not based on obedience. It's based on faith in Christ. It's based on trusting in him because he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Father, we pray that they would make, they would clearly understand this, that they might believe that Jesus died for them and have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.